Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. We are following the reading schedule from the Pynchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 21 through 25 of Mason and Dixon, the final five chapters in part one. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. All right. Uh, Will, do you have a summary of these chapters for us? Yes, I do. Our section begins with an image of small-town bickering, ceaseless petty conflicts which drove both Rebecca and Mason to seek escape. One afternoon picnic, he promises to bring her on the journey to observe the transit that we've just seen he and Dixon complete. And while she wishes it would be a voyage to secure riches, she is still thrilled at the opportunity, pledging herself to learn all the various lingos and dialects of use along the path to Sumatra. Charles tells Dixon of their night tripping to fabled Stonehenge near one midsummer. There they teased and flirted over Rebecca's proposed druidic lineage and Mason's assumed foolishness. He cannot escape these memories. They consume him even in the farewell conversations with his sons. His last stop before departure, he meets with Neville Maskelyne once more to become acquainted with yet another upstart scientist even younger and more proud than the intermediary astronomer. Up in Durham, Dixon is set to meet a Father Mayer of the Jesuit Order at his former tutor's parlor. The discussion of William Emerson inspires a bout of input from the cousin de Pew, who talks of his own tutelage via the mystic Dr. Franz Mesmer. He has plans to disappear into the western territories of the Young Union and ply his learned magnetism for profit, where doctors cannot thwart a good grift. His older relatives promise it's already too late to do so without interference from first movers, even in the frontier. We see a few vignettes of Dixon's edification by Mr. Emerson. Flying along ley lines, meditations upon vortices, discussions of Roman motives. The teacher holds umbrage with the creator's failure to perfect. He asks Dixon in their last lesson together of his plans, and is similarly let down by his students on ambition. Back in Emerson's parlor, Mayer tries to woo Dixon into helping out the Society of Jesus' plans. They are trapped by the squeezing of Europe, the papacy no longer so sure of their rectitude as an order. They are trying to flee to Asia, China in particular, but feel that they must overturn the native order of feng shui to do so. Therefore, it follows that what they need is a global mapping, a mathematical sense of the world, from which they can begin to straighten the bent lines of the Chinese. Dixon may have been swayed, so he says, if it weren't for the celibacy. The meeting devolves into political snipes before their host suggests a retreat to his local tavern. Dixon knows the place well enough to dread it, and the priest dons a disguise to play as Emerson's London-born cousin. There, at the cudgel and throck, Mare makes one last entreat to, to Jeremiah, lowering the stakes to that of a friendly sort of keeping an eye out for the Jesuit purposes. Dixon has settled his mind, already dead tired of the assumptions of Jesuit entanglement about himself, and refuses. This unveils the secret underlying it all. There had been a wager between his tutor and the priest over his willingness, Father Mayer seeming to believe in some degree of chosen capacity in him for this mission. An old acquaintance of Dixon appears to, for appears to foretell the arrival of one of his friends, a certain reverse lycanthrope named Lud Ophery, and his mother. Ludd and Jeremiah had spent many hours wandering the mines and tunnels which laced the underworld of their county, prophesying that each of them would be meant for carving lines on either side of the topsoil. 
They've come to wish Dixon safe travels, according to Ma Ofri, while Emerson is sure that her son's purpose is to inquire from him another spell of some sort. Considering divergent beliefs as to the world's shape, Father Mare lets slip his knowledge of an exotic form of meal from Italy. Pizza. There. In this depressed little bar, they all contribute to the construction of the first English pizza, a country loaf founded flat, topped with ketchup, stilton, and brined anchovies. Their feast is briefly interrupted, with Luds being struck by a moonbeam and transforming into a northern fop. His mother cannot abide this monthly interlude of proto-hipstery. The next thing Dixon tells his astronomical partner is the story of his father's shoe thievery, which resulted in his conception. When his father died, he spent the next stretch drinking and doodling, an early iteration of what is now termed world-building, a fantasy in which he might abscond himself should another period of grief appear. He finds himself losing the trust of those around him. In his preferred pub, the Jolly Pitman, he'd been told all sorts of tall tales, and upon returning, he supplies the, the younger crowd with his own. From there, he sets sail to London to sign the contract, but experiences a lapse in reality through fog, seeing some cousins and friends who transplanted themselves years before to the Delaware River shores. He cannot make sense of this momentary transplantation. After a long morning of document signing, Dixon shares his condolences with Mason regarding Bradley. Mason reveals the conclusion on the matter of, Le of the Legrand. France is not at war with the sciences, meant to him that he must move on, grow up, accept fates, twists, and recognize the permanent loss of his wife. That his actions would have consequences. They bicker over admitting to fear for their lives in the seahorse's hold, but recognize that writing for a replacement post after Ben Coolin's capture may have encouraged just enough resentment to inspire the dereliction Mason had experienced despite his previously high post. Maskelyne had revealed to Mason that the mention of Skanderoon had signed their death certificates for the Royal Society. They'd already suspected too much entanglement between Mason and the Peaches, so to avoid further debts to the textile trade and the sort of people they anticipated dealing with there, they'd partnered instead with the forces of capital and colony. At this reveal, Dixon and Mason consider if the chartered company will be the defining shape of the world to come, and realize that America will be more like the Cape than as some pocket of England across the pond. All right. Um, so I have to I have to admit, well, I was the the mention of the the werewolf had me laughing again at that whole situation because that was just hilarious. So I I liked the way. That you summarized that whole thing, and we'll get to that that part when it comes. But I just wanted to say I love that particular uh, summary there. Thanks. It's one of my favorite parts of the book because, frankly, I don't understand it. Um. So, what what is everyone's general thoughts on this chapter? Or on these chapters? Sorry. It's it's nice to get more information on the Jesuits because up until this point, they've kind of been lurking in the background for you know the average mention just being that they might be around or that something is associated with them so getting like an actual character who belongs to the society of jesus and and seeing sort of what he is like is is super interesting in mm -hmm. the grand scheme especially because during the conversation between him and dixon there seems to be a casual mention of the fact that the jesuits do have some kind of underground communication system in america that Dixon could use if he was going to 
sort of represent their interests, which we we know he has no interest in doing. So that that part I really enjoyed seeing kind of one of these people who, who potentially represents a, a capital T they entering into the narrative. But it's also nice to get more information on Dixon's backstory. You know, obviously, historically, there's there's very little that we know about him. So kind of getting to see the backstory and, and, and the additional information that Pinchon comes up for him is good, because up until these chapters, it's mostly been kind of about Mason and his life. And there is some more interesting things in these chapters about Mason and his, you know, relationship with Rebecca. But getting to to see a bit more of an interior side of Dixon and where he came from was was significantly interesting. The the sections of these chapters where he's recounting his time, learning how to become a surveyor and and being in in school and the disagreements between how he sees, you know, surveying and and map making with with that of his teachers was was eminently fascinating. And there's also a lot of really good Pinchonian stuff in here, like like the werewolf, like you mentioned, and also the <laughs> The, the first ever British pizza, yep. which is just something of a of an, a, a nightmare to, to watch them um, make, uh, was was also certainly really entertaining. Um, but overall, these chapters to me kind of feel like we're we're pushing towards the end of the first third and and moving just into the um, the section of the book that everyone is sort of waiting to to come up with. So while there is interesting stuff in there. Certainly in the background, it kind of feels like like we're just sort of waiting to get to when the voyage begins. Yeah, I found these chapters a little bit more hit and miss uh, than what came before it. There are some there's some stuff I really loved. Um, what Will termed world building with uh, Dixon uh, building a map in his mind. Um, generally. I I really love maps. I grew up looking at my family had like a. a a North American atlas uh, with like it would all with all the states in it, and they would have smaller maps of the different municipalities. And I spent you know like hours and and days looking at that growing up. Um, so I, I definitely understand Dixon's kind of youthful obsession with that kind of stuff. I really loved the whole Dixon uh, and his his schoolmates being taught to fly around on ley lines. I thought that was a really cool part, uh, really fun to visualize. Although, according to the Pynchon Wiki, the phrase ley lines is uh, an anachronism from the source from the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Kate said, the the pizza part is really cool, very Pinchonian. Um, I don't know. There are other parts. I, I did also like the Mason, or, or the depiction of courtship between Mason and Rebecca, uh, them kind of... You know, it is kind of implied that that's perhaps the first time that they really talked about marriage. It's not stated, but I could see that being kind of headcanon for even Pynchon himself, that that was the first time that 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 subject was broached, um, which can be a a very, a very large stepping stone in any romantic relationship. Um, But that being said, I think it was chapter 24, the end of chapter 24. I was very confused by it. Uh, some online resources kind of helped me wrap my head around it, but in the moment of reading, I was pretty lost. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy the the conversation in the bar. I think it also in chapter twenty four, might be chapter twenty three. Um, I found that part a little bit boring. I don't know. I mean, the part with Lud and stuff. It is kind of cool that someone had to translate Lud's like grunts and groans, and there are some cool parts of it. I just, I don't know. There, there's some of my favorite parts of the first. 
section are in this are in this section we went over for today, but also some of the most confusing and kind of um yeah, I guess confusing is probably the, the best word to describe it. Um mm-hmm. stuff that I just couldn't wrap my head around necessarily without outside uh re like resources helping me. Um was it the the scene on the coal barge that you're referring to at the end of chapter 24? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I just whenever in the like I like I said, I mean, I found some stuff online that explained it pretty well, but whenever I was reading it, I was completely lost as to what was going on. I mean, I knew that I think it's Dixon was perhaps taking a boat or was all like walking along a river or something. Um I just found that part very hard to kind of uh parse uh, in the act of reading and then you know, I, look, I looked up some stuff and it seemed to explain it pretty well, but I don't know. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. That was where I, I definitely had to kind of go back and, and reread things and, and, yeah, jump into the, the wiki more and, and get some outside information. Um, it's, I liked these chapters. They weren't my favorite up to this point, but they did have some of my favorite moments in them. Um, Luke, I, I like that you mentioned that you, you also, you had that, uh, kind of obsession with maps that, that Dixon, uh, is shown to have in these chapters. I, as a kid, and especially as a young reader, um, I was really also into maps, but more so I liked, I liked fantasy books a lot. I still do. Uh, and so I would love, you know, any book that came with a, a map in the front or in the back was like, that was a game changer for me. I would, I was, I knew I was going to like that book because I could get to look at these new lands and, and how everything was laid out. And that was always kind of one of my favorite parts of, of jumping into a fantasy book was kind of understanding how the world is set up and looking at their, at their map and comparing it to maps of, of our world and, and where the parallels may be and how, you know, things on, on our maps influence the things that, that appear on the fantasy maps and things like that. So it was always interesting for me to, you know, have a map to look at. And I, you know, certainly still find maps fascinating, especially when you really kind of dive into the science behind making them. And especially at, at this time in history and the difficulty involved with accurately representing, you know, distances and, and features uh, on a map is mind-blowing science. And so I think that's part of what makes this, this book so fascinating is the, the science that comes into play when they start, you know, actually laying out the, uh, the line itself and the map making processes and all that. Um, but I think for me, the other part of these chapters that I, I don't think it necessarily lent it a, or made it more challenging or difficult, but there is a lot of history crammed into these chapters that I would find myself stopping, you know, mid page to go over to the pension wiki just to jump onto you know regular wikipedia or some other you know branch off of there from a source that i found so i learned a lot but it also led to it taking longer for me to get through these chapters because i would go down these kind of rabbit holes of of learning about william emerson or or franz mesmer or, you know all these different people and events so um but all in all, I, I think, like Kate said, it was a good way to bring this section to an end. Yeah, I think it kind of does a good job of tying together all of the backstory and and kind of letting us as readers have a pretty good understanding of, of at least of our main characters and, and their motivations at this point. Yeah, did what, what got turned up when you looked up all the historical people? Did it add anything 
Oh, to, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll get into it. Uh, especially William Emerson. Holy crap. That dude is something else. Yeah. I really appreciate seeing, uh, on some level up until this point there, there is the question for the reader, even if you want to believe everything Dixon says is true, even if you want to like him, if you want to f- believe that he is not some controlled actor from the powers that be, you still have the question because, you know, he is, he is a, a, a bit of a, he's a joker. And it's really nice to see really, first of all, why he has such a strong reliance upon humor. Uh, and further, what what in particular leads him to have such a kind of bizarre attitude with authority with this teacher who's just kind of who just really has no respect for anything that he values because from from Dixon's perspective surveying map making these are these are noble pursuits ends within themselves but for Emerson they're low they're less that they should be discarded with and on some level it comes across like Emerson regrets teaching Dixon anything and I think that's a really interesting angle at his at, at this character. Yeah, not just that, but it also lends an interesting commonality between Mason and Dixon, where Mason's father kind of took on that role of of thinking that his interest in in the sky and and charting what's in the sky and and sort of planets and the heavenly bodies was not worth not worth the time investment. Looked down on it, and Dixon in a very inverse relationship really was interested in the ground and these ley lines that seem to be more of a metaphysical definition for the purpose of of this book but also received that that negative feedback from his te- from from a a in in his case his teacher but certainly someone who could have been a father figure for him too it, it, to me it lends some credence to why they have some kinship I did find Emerson's like objection to um, it's kind of inspired by what Will said, but Emerson's rejection or um, disapproval of of uh, Dixon wanting to be a surveyor. Uh, this is kind of something that I've I've thought about in general with uh, Pynchon that that comes up a little bit in Against the Day uh, and Gravity's Rainbow, like his more historical novels, especially Gravity's Rainbow with like the zone and the the kind of fluidity of borders, but it, I don't, and I find this hard to kind of put into words, but I do think that Pynchon in general kind of laments, uh, the, the like, like fences and like, like, you know, like d- dividing lands and stuff. I, I kind of feel like, especially in against the day and Mason and Dixon, he seems to kind of glorify, um, like the frontier and the kind of, you know, like how you used to be able to just kind of like walk across America without having to deal with barbed wire. And all that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't know if I'm being clear. I, I. Like I said, I find it hard to kind of delineate exactly what I. What I mean by that, but it does seem like Pynchon kind of laments the the development of like fencing technology and like the the delineation of, of property lines and all this different kind of stuff. You know, it feels like Pynchon's perfect world would would feature no no real walls or fences, and you could just kind of go ever go wherever you want. No, I I totally agree. I think that kind of plays into his his view on and this is something i wanted to bring up uh, eventually um but his his view on on capitalism and, and especially with the with the mention to you know the the fences and that kind of thing i think that kind of you could see that in a sense of 
it being sort of, you know, bureaucratic, like you've taken this, this land that really shouldn't be able to be claimed to be owned by anyone. But now we're, you know, as, as people, we have decided that we can put up these arbitrary lines that define, you know, where one place starts and another place ends and, and you can go here, but you can't go here. Um, so I, I think that kind of ties into his, his general views on, on those two areas and, and how that could impact, you know, something like that. And I, for one, you know, personally, I, I see where, he's, where he would be coming from. If that's an accurate representation, obviously, you know, that's speculation, but you know, I, I, could I, I would enjoy a world like that where we, we had the ability to just wander freely and, and explore and not have to worry about the consequence of, you know, wandering into an area where you're quote unquote, not supposed to be. Um, that sadly is not the world we live in, but it certainly would be nice. With regard to the, the against the day connection that Luke brought up, I think that there's a line on page 221 in the in the argument between Dixon and, Emerson that really summarizes, or not doesn't summarize, but it, to me it pinpoints the this particular theme that that is so powerful in Mason and Dixon and against the day. It's um, business can but increase between enclosure and subdivision. Why there's work enough in Durham for the very day for a hundred surveyors, and the, simply the, the the phrase between enclosure and subdivision. Um, is one that really echoes to me the same. There, there's a paragraph in the opening, the opening pages of Against the Day, all about um, how cattle are pushed from pasture into slaughterhouses um, through uh, hallways that bend and divide them up so that they can't uh, see one another. And I see that that as kind of the kernel of the overlap between these two books. And getting to Pinchon's sort of dislike of fence lines or di division of property, unless I'm mistaken, I believe when Cherry Coke first brings up the actual like process of, of striking a line through the heart of the wilderness, I believe is part of how he describes it. But he also says that, if I'm not mistaken, that it was a pointless endeavor, that ultimately it didn't really mean anything or, or matter. And of course, you know, a hundred years or so later, it ended up being the the division line for the Civil War, but um, at the time, certainly, it, it seems though there was some confusion as to why they would even want this particular uh, division of of latitude and longitude marked out at all, as far as what the purpose of it was for. Well, yeah, and Dixon even kind of plays down its its significance when he's talking to I think it's. Um... Uh, Lud's mother, uh, and he, I don't remember the specific page, but he kind of downplays it as not being a, a visto. And it's just basically like, yeah, these, these two people want to kind of just draw a line and, and map out. Um, oh, here it is uh, on page 234, sort of a long property line, ma, both sides want the trees out of the way, easier for getting sites. So I wouldn't call it a visto exactly. So even he's kind of just downplaying the, the overall significance of it and, you know, it ended up being accurate. I think it was shortly after they completed the line that it, it almost became arbitrary. Um, and until the civil war, when there was a, it kind of got a new purpose, um, that I definitely wasn't intended for, but it, yeah, it kind of just 
you know, was a big thing to do at the time and then faded out of importance almost immediately, it seems. Yeah, and I, I might, this might be a bit of a stretch, but it seems to me, especially with all these talks throughout the, this section that we read for this episode, um, between all these, these moments where Dixon and Mason accidentally step into America, um, and then mm-hmm. the discussion in chapter 25 later on, about um, what it'll be like in America, whether it's a pocket of Britain or if it is something more like the Dutch Cape, where they're not really Dutch, but they are Dutchmen. And all of the discussion in the Cape about how colonies are where the the dirty work is done out of the view of those who would have the power to change any of it um, really makes you wonder about how much that line was there as a distraction to, to be basically, well, we can't separate you by an ocean from slavery, but here, the Northerners, you're good. You're not slave owners. The Southerners, they're the bad ones. Yeah, and even in that conversation in Chapter 25 between Mason and Dixon, you have an illustration of the differences in, in their ability to understand you know, local populations like we were talking about when they first went to, to Cape Town, where. Dixon was able to more easily enmesh himself in a different society and, and a different group of people. It's Mason who sees kind of the the high-minded British ideal of empire and, and colonialism as saying, you know, they're they're definitely still British, but it's Dixon who who correctly understands, no, they're not. Uh they're no more British <laughs> yeah. than the Cape Dutch or Dutch. Like they're they that quotes on 248, but it, it's just such a this clever illustration of where you come from and this society that you you come out of is very clearly going to shape your understanding of of groups of people or of the the you know impact of of a project like trying to create a colony especially so far away from from where the kind of throne is in this case um it's another one of these really clever moments where he uses their difference in upbring, upbringing to to denote who is really correct and and who to a certain degree, might be seen as delusional for believing that. Well, and, and while we're on that kind of general area, I found that in most of the, through, throughout a lot of this this section, there's a lot of mention of what I would I, I think you could kind of vaguely term the American dream um, that Pynchon I think brings up in a, in a lot of his, especially in the bigger novels. Um, you know, Gravity's Rainbow and and this one and Against the Day. Um, and there's a lot of I found a lot of of sections in here to kind of be an examination of of capitalism. Um, but more so I, I think looking at it in hindsight, because the the capitalism that exists now is obviously vastly different from what it initially started as. Um, but I think there's a lot of kind of examination of the idea that the American dream is not exactly as as shiny as it's made out to be. And this is something he played with a lot in Against the Day as well. Um, but it comes up as early as, as page uh, 217, where um, there's the the very beginning of that page. Uh, it says, Bray cries her father in a mock offended tone. Anyone with the necessary drive can make a go of it here. As Mr. Tock says in his uh, Pennsylvania 21st or second book, a young man seeking to advance himself will get him to the nearest source of pelf, uh, which I looked that up and that term it means money. 
Um, and few of those, a few of these are more distinctly pelfier than Long Life, Queen of Sky Girls, Philadelphia. Um, and from there, it kind of, you know, even later on that page, they kind of had this discussion of medical care and how the practice of medicine kind of gets edged out by the idea of competition in, in places like America. So, and I think, you know, as I mentioned, this is, you know, the idea of Pinchon examining capitalism plays in a lot of his books. Um, and this is definitely not an exception. I don't know if y'all picked up on, on those parts as well. Oh, absolutely. I think you summed it up well, though. One thing I found interesting about that conversation, let me check if it's, is it, is that the conversation about mesmerism or no? No, yeah. that comes up a little bit later, I think. Okay. No, that it might be is, it. It might be. It's the me. same discussion. It, it changes subject. Yeah, because I definitely thought that um, Cousin Depew was, was lying about having been mesmerized. I definitely, like, the fact that it costs that much, he's definitely trying to impress his cousin. We'll circle back around to the, the capitalist stuff because it comes into play later. But Luke, since you brought up the whole mesmerism thing, that's another one of these areas that I, I looked into. Um, I, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with, with Franz Mesmer and his whole thing, I guess we'll call it. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it's, a really, it's a really beautiful choice of person to center in this book. Yeah. Just because of how much... Franz Mesmer, uh, you did more research, so please, please enlighten us as to. I, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I did a whole lot of research. I did, I spent some time looking into him. I think the most interesting things I found about him, um, so he had ties to to Mozart's family, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, he claims to have basically there was a story that he put out that Mozart, when he was, I think he was twelve was supposed to have a performance and it got canceled for reasons that I couldn't really parse out, but he claims that he then set up a performance for Mozart, a one act opera of sorts in his own garden. And this ended up apparently being completely debunked by Mozart's actual, his, his initial biographer. Um, but it is confirmed that he had a close relationship with the Mozart family. There's a lot of documented um, correspondence between the two of them, but uh, Mozart had a um a i don't know if it was an opera or just a, a musical uh, called uh, and i'm gonna horribly butcher the pronunciation here uh cosi fantuti uh in which he actually put mesmer in as uh they had a big falling out apparently and so he put mesmer in in a sort of comedic uh unflattering light into that particular work uh, but Mesmer created this whole concept of what's what was called animal magnetism. And there's I don't want to go too into it because it's just this bonkers um, pseudoscience that ended up gaining a lot of traction among this this movement that started around the early 19th century called New Thought, which would eventually kind of bleed into a lot of the, the New Age medicine that we kind of see today. But. Mesmer was was essentially involved in the the creation of a lot of that concept of using magnets to heal and cure disease, which was roundly debunked by pretty much every major scientific entity at the time. They all jumped on this and were like, nope, doesn't work like that. We've tested it through and through. There is absolutely no evidence. But as with a lot of those pseudoscientific ideas, people still latch onto it and will build it into being something that it that they want it to be, but it, there's no evidence of, of being able to back it up. 
So yeah, I, I, I agree that it's, it's, he was the right person to put into this and he has, so he ties into Emerson as well. Um, and Emerson was a, a whole, a whole other kind of character. Um, just to kind of give you a, a brief summation of his, uh, his whole situation I found on, on Wikipedia and I confirmed a lot of this, uh, externally from Wikipedia, but the specific quote in Wikipedia summarizes it pretty well. Uh, it says that Emerson dressed in old clothes and his manners were uncouth. He wore his shirt back to front and his legs wrapped in sacking so as not to scorch them as he sat over the fire. He declined an offer to become FRS because it would cost him too much after the ex- all the expensive farthing candles he had been put to in the course of life of his study. He rode regularly into Darlington on a horse like Don Quixote's, led by a hired small boy. Uh, and in his old age, plagued by the stone, he would alternately pray and curse, wishing his soul, quote, could shake off the rags of mortality without such a clitter me clatter. So the reference, the mention on page 228 when they are, when they enter the bar and the bartender says, our God is blood, it's the old back to front. He's referring to Emerson's uh, crisscross style of dress. So yeah, jumping off that into a a further historical tangent that I can't help but think is an intentional one to evoke. One of the most, one of the more recent people influenced directly by Mesmer, um, more recent, was a con man known as Napoleon Hill, an American who is most famous for writing two books, The Law of Success and Think and Grow Rich, which essentially fused together what what has been coined the Protestant work ethic with um, the ideas of ag- animal magnetism and the some of the beliefs of the theosophical movement that branched off of animal magnetism and such beliefs. Um, and Napoleon Hill is nowadays seen as kind of the root for books like The Secret, which if you ask that me... That makes sense. Yeah. If you ask me, is the most uh, direct epitome of the American dream that exists. <laughs> a, a con man learning about like how you can just lie to people and uh, tell them that if they believe real hard, they'll get rich and using that to <laughs> run like a dozen multi-level marketing schemes and get incredibly wealthy off of book sell- sales. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. I worked at Barnes and Noble when that book came out and oh my God, that was a nightmare. There's a really cool podcast called, uh, if books could kill and they, they examine, uh, what they call airport bestsellers like the secret. And they did it in I think their first episode was on the secret. It was a really good listen. So if you, if you are more interested in diving into that, cause that book is absolutely bonkers. Um, check out that their episode on that. It was really good. Yeah. And, uh, if, and anything, Anything about Napoleon Hill is an incredible story. So if you ever see any article or podcast about him, highly recommend checking it out because he was a crazy person in every possible way. Yeah, I mean, it's not just him either. The The founder of chiropractic medicine, um, D.D. Palmer, was a magnetic healer and a, a devotee of mesmerism and animal magnetism and all of that. Um who developed chiropractic medicine in the late 1800s in favor of his his failing philosophical ventures in in that regard um and some of his early work in developing chiropractic medicine is pretty insane and 
there's very good reasons why him and his like closest devotees at the time were blacklisted by the medical association and i think the american association of of doctors it had banned chiropractic medicine until like the mid 70s um so the the level of like reach that this one man had and the different people who who spun off of the philosophies that he was putting forward at the time is is pretty wild especially as it some of which developed into um legitimate you know science or legitimate medicine in the case of of chiropractic medicine versus something like napoleon hill and what he does yeah and the 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 key difference there and i think i'm sure that this is well i'm not i can't say i'm sure but i i would not be surprised if finchon wasn't thinking about this is that franz mesmer was not a bad person right nowadays he's remembered as a scammer and all of this stuff but in reality he was a true believer in what he was saying he tried his best to be scientific he was just working in the 1700s and was kind of you know starting in the wrong direction he ended up denouncing a lot of the things that people ascribed to him yeah which is a perfect example of what you know this time period represents as sort of this dawn of a scientific age where you know, we have a pretty established idea of what the scientific method is now and what it leads to, but then you could just sort of propose anything and, and anything was kind of up for equal use or debate because we hadn't developed the ways to, to test these things out yet. It was really a a moment of of expansion in, in thought, science, medicine, and, and all of that. It, he's He's really... To your point about him later recanting, he's really a perfect example of what this time period that, that Pinchon is writing about in this book, you know, really represents. Yeah, and I think it also kind of highlights the the dangers of taking those ideas to an extreme. Um, you know, as you mentioned, he he was genuinely trying to use science to prove what he was doing, um, and was using the you know, the available technology. And so, I mean, you can even trace it back to, um, you know, heliocentrism and and Copernicus, and and the you know they were doing the best they could with the, with what they had at the time. But when certain people latch on to those ideas and carry them to dangerous territories, you know, where to the point where um, you're in the case of like magnetism, you know, you're you're trying to encourage people, uh, not to say Mesmer was, but the people who latched on to his ideas, uh, trying to use these known false methods of treatment to cure people of these terrible diseases that, you know, even today people still do this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, you look back at, you know, when, with heliocentrism, when we got to the point of knowing that, no, the sun is not the center of everything and, or the earth is not the center of everything. Sorry that, you know, everything revolves around the sun, but the church had already decided that, nope, it's not that way. This is what we've already decided, and anyone who says otherwise, you know, we're they're, we're taking them out. It took it took forever to get out of that, um, and that's kind of the thing about science is is it's it can do a lot of wonderful things, but if the wrong people or the, the people in power use it incorrectly, that's when it becomes a problem that has to be grappled with. And I think that's something that Penchon deals with in a lot of his work, uh, and again, especially in. The, the big ones, the Mason and Dixon, Gravity's Rainbow, and, and Against the Day. Yeah, especially here when you have the two tight, you know, titular characters not understanding why they're being asked to do what they, they're doing, why they're being paid as much money as they are to do what they they do, 
you know, in chapter 25, there's a lot of concern about how history is going to view them versus the Royal Society. All of those ideas of, you know, why are these things being done? Why are they being done the way that they are? Did the Jesuits have something to do with it? Is there some other force behind it? Those are all questions that Pinchon is essentially asking the reader through the the usage of his of his protagonists, which is additionally a really intelligent choice on his part for how he composed this book. Yeah, and I, th- I think that kind of plays back into the the examination of, of capitalism and that, you know, Mason and Dixon, I think, understand that the only way they can continue doing what they love doing is to quote unquote, play the game and, and work with these people in power, even though they hate every moment of it, they know that the, the EIC and the Royal society don't have their best interests at heart. It's more that, you know, they can use what Mason and Dixon can do to benefit themselves, to, to make profit, um, you know, and that's, I mean, that's capitalism in a nutshell. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you take the people who can do the work and you put them to work for you at the cheapest cost possible to keep them doing what they can do for you while you profit off of it and, you know, live in a life of luxury while they are forced to work and, uh, and, and, hope for those things because you're constantly feeding them this, this ideal that they want to believe that can be achieved, but ultimately can't because they don't have the, the positioning to allow them to succeed at that level. Which, I mean, to your point, get, gets to a, a really big moment of character for the two of them in that they, they clearly acknowledge these things that you're talking about. Like they, they understand that that's the reality of it, but they care so deeply about what they've chosen to do mm-hmm. that they're willing to do it anyway. In, in some ways they're, they're kind of an inverse of the conversation between like Stanley Kotex and Oedipa at Yo-Yo Dine, where rather than complaining necessarily about who gets credit for it in the, especially in the case of Mason, not trying to put his name on the work of his, of his mentor, they're just invested in continuing the, the the research that they they care about so deeply they they understand the system that they're living in and and the fact that they are servants of that system but are still willing to go ahead with what is asked of them because it, it still strikes at the heart of of what they've chosen to do clearly through a lot of opposition in their life up to this point as Pinchon has laid out in especially the last 10 chapters so let's, I want to, um, I, I, we're kind of ping-ponging here between these, these two topics of, of capitalism and, and the pseudoscientific stuff, but I want to touch on the ley lines because that becomes a big thing in, in these chapters. Um, as, as Luke pointed out earlier, um, the, the use of this term is very anachronistic. Uh, I think, Luke, you did mention that it came, it started in the 20s, uh, which I, I believe is correct. Um, it definitely was not a thing at this time. Um, However, it's it's interesting that this idea is put in there. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong. Will you've you've read against the day more recently than I have? Don't ley lines come into play in that as well? Oh yes, they do. But it, that's right. That's because it has to do with I think the the way that they're using electricity or something. They were trying to run it along the ley lines. Yeah, I think it's in the first section, and it took me a very long time to get through the second section. So I'm not sure, but I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so there's, and, and there's some interesting history as well, uh, that's, that's tied to all of this, uh, in the early, uh, in the early part of this, 
on page 218, when, uh, when the ley lines are first mentioned, um, there's this long paragraph, uh, two paragraphs, I'm sorry, that, that take up most of the page. And there's a couple of things in there that were mentioned that I thought were interesting. And this is another one of those instances where uh, I didn't understand the reference, so I checked on the Pinchon wiki, and that led me to looking into other things. So the, the mention of switched corpses uh, in the second paragraph is a reference to Queen Elizabeth I. Apparently there was a theory that she had died at the age of 10 and her body was uh, hidden and replaced with a young boy from town known as the Bisley Boy. And this is something that even Bram Stoker bought into and in endorsed in one of his books, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the other interesting little thing that I found in there, the, the, he mentions uh, each night the stones were removed and transported in a right line through the air at brisk speed to the church's present site. You can take a map, draw a straight line from the barrow near Great Badminton, we call the Giant's Caves, to the long barrow near the camp, and you'll observe it passes directly over Bisley and might have been the church stones' route of transport, the ancient barrows being known as sources of and foci for the telluric energies. The Pinchon Wiki, and I would encourage everyone to go and check this out, has a link to Google Maps that shows that this line does exist as described in the book. Um, so I, th I thought that was interesting to be able to take a look at that and, and see that. And the fact that he would include something like that in a book from 1997, when I don't know how easy it would have been to, to get that information specifically, is astonishing again we've talked about the history in this and, and the amount of research that it would have required to get all of this information crammed into here but it's little things like those that i'm just like holy crap like that is such an obscure little thing to throw in there yeah and it, it's obviously very deliberate given that it comes during a section of chapters where stonehenge is mentioned and where mm -hmm. uh mason refers to his wife as as a as a uh, a druid um like, I think that that's very clearly Pinchon trying to key in the reader that he's not necessarily just using the, the phrase to, to refer to points of longitude and latitude. He's, he's also referring to them in the metaphysical sense. But uh, in researching, like, the history of it and where this terminology comes from, you know, Luke is absolutely correct in how anachronistic it is. There's a really great article from the BBC that I would recommend uh any of our listeners go read called Ley Lines, the UK's Mysterious Ancient Pathways. Um, it's written by this this writer named Bell Jacobs, who traces not just the development of the history in how we came up with what they were, but also, you know, th those original published works in the 1920s and, and where they literally exist in England in particular. The article focuses on this idea of these energy lines that exist in England and who advocates for it and, and why. And the interest, the most interesting thing I came across from that, other than just the the wide swath of information that's in the article, is a lot of it comes from the Roman invasion of Britain, and that it was the this kind of attempt at Romanizing England through the establishment of roads or of, of breaking up the continent uh, or breaking up the country rather in these these sort of lines of of energy or or belief that still had some ties to the the druidic culture and the, and the people that were there that really indicated to me especially in the use of stones like you're talking about cody where you have this outside occupying force coming into a land where they don't have an origin point and they're using these stones to mark out different you know 
passageways or, or different uh, points of of magical energy if you're someone who believes in that. And you end up having Mason and Dixon do exactly the same thing, essentially. They go to America, a place that they're not from, a place that they don't have any you know, cultural or historical claim to from a standpoint of being of the land. And they're going to mark out a line with stone markers, I believe every eight miles is what um, Cherry Coke says in the beginning of the book. So it's it it seems very deliberate in in not just the usage of the word, but in also illustrating that this is another cycle of history. Whether you believe in the magic behind it, um, which Dixon may, depending on how you read those conversations with his with his mentor and teacher, you still have another empire doing exactly the same thing to a different land. Albeit this time, it's for a purpose that the protagonists who are about to go out and actually engage in it have no concept as to why one thing i find interesting that is maybe a bit random but i'm looking at the wikipedia page for ley lines right now and um it does have multiple mentions of a man named clive ruggles and if i'm not mistaken isn't 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 pension's middle name That's his middle name yeah yeah mm-hmm. and in ruggles i guess was um uh, it, it talks about ley lines as it relates to the 1960s counterculture so that could be where he first kind of picked up on it was in the 1960s. I think it ended up um, being, I don't want to say hijacked, but it, it ended up being picked up by the, um, what is it, the the ancient astronaut believers, the the people who believe that there were, you know, extraterrestrial astronauts, so to speak, that, that had visited Earth at different times and, and were responsible for a lot of, like the Inca lines and stuff like that. I, th- I want to say they had some connection to that as well. Um, I didn't look too far into it, but I think I remember yeah. reading something about that. There, yeah. there. She, she talks about in that article. There's a belief that they were used as like guiding lines for, yeah, for yeah. extraterrestrial craft that would be flying over or down to to England. Yeah, the the esoteric movement of the 1800s would have definitely, uh, I guess, proliferated the ideas of these lines. Um, throughout society, uh, it seems like you know uh, the, the Nazis to some extent believed in something of the sort, and you know we know essentially that he had to have been wandering around Gloucestershire to to have some of these insights he had. So it wouldn't be terribly surprising if he went on a long walk with some old man who just happened to have some hair up his butt about ley lines who <laughs> described this whole path to him. Yeah, but, that's, that's entirely possible. But this, um, this entire, the, all of this, this talk of ley lines, it, it will, you know, come up throughout the book as we keep on going. And so this will keep being brought up, but it, it, I can't help but be reminded of the discussion of highways in the crying of lot 49 and in his other mm-hmm. books, especially when, when Dixon is talking about the, the, the sheer free joy of flying above ground at such a high rate. It really is reminiscent of some of those scenes in Lot 49 where Oedipa is traveling into San Francisco or L.A. Yeah, and getting back to Luke's point earlier about Pinchon's relative disgust of, of you know, fences or boundary lines, it, it really does recall the scene where, um, I forgot the character's name, at this present moment, he talks about the the usage of a highway to to bulldoze over a a graveyard, um, and to to set up this this new distinguished way of uh, of traveling across the land, but at, at the cost of something inherent to the land. 
I think that was Mr. Thoth, I think. Another part you're talking about in Lot 49. Yeah, it's when, it's when she's drinking dandelion uh, wine. Oh, that would be Cohen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I think, the, fir- the first or second time she talks to him. Yeah. I can't remember. I've been reading a book on the history of science fiction that, that really delves into, like, kind of even before Frankenstein, uh, histories of sci-fi. And I can't remember if it's in, in that book or if it's later in Mason and Dixon that there's a discussion of, like, the uh, Aether, I, I think that's how you say it, the, and like there being th- things like ley lines where it's like a, a highway in the sky. And that's like if you can like if you raise up into the sky, then you can fly, but only along like the these like preset lines. I can't remember if that's in this book or if I encountered that in that history of sci fi, honestly. Well, I know the, it's the a Aether, thing. Yeah, the Aether idea was was uh huge in the i want to say late 1800s early 1900s the the idea that basically space was not an empty vacuum but that it was it was a fluid almost that could be traversed through almost like a like like going through water um and that yeah i think that that tied into the idea that there were these certain pathways that were set into it that would allow for faster travel which kind of lent itself to the idea of extraterrestrial travel being possible uh, despite the vast distances of the universe, the ether, the ether thing is a really fascinating um, bit of, of uh, astronomical science. I read Simon Singh's uh, Big Bang book a long time ago, and he had a whole big long section at the beginning about that uh, and how that influenced uh, modern astronomy and and how it they. I think if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time since I read that book, part of uh, their measurements took into account this idea of the ether and, and how uh, light would refract through it because it was seen as a fluid and, and how that kind of influenced the, the movement away from it because it, if, if it was a fluid, it would, have been, it would have been refracting differently and we would have seen things uh, differently. It's a fascinating... I don't want to get too off in the weeds about it. It's really interesting to read about that. Um, but yeah, Luke, I, I think it is... Aether is at least mentioned, and I think it has been mentioned so far in Mason and Dixon... And it definitely comes up later, although it's much more prevalent in Against the Day. And I think mm-hmm. that's where you have the explicit discussion of using the Aether to uh, go across ley lines. Yeah, I think because there's a, there's a lot of discussions of uh, vectors in Against the Day. And I've always yes. really I've always really loved the word vector and I've I've used it in some of my own uh, writing and stuff. I do think it's really. I don't know, just thinking in terms of it's a really interesting idea, like this whole like, you know, thinking like thinking of yourself in terms of like, you know, where something else is and how to draw a straight line from you to there and stuff. I I don't know. It does kind of maybe play into Dixon's whole like map making in his head thing as well. When when you're you're talking about this, like and this has come up, I think, in probably every single episode where we've talked about um, Mason and Dixon, where you have this sort of period of melding of of religiosity and and this new scientific age like the if you go into the etymology of the term aether and and its origins in mythology it was used to describe either you know wind currents or ways of travel uh or different scientific concepts but the word itself um like if you go back and and trace where it came from it was this belief that it was essentially like a pure essence that that the the greek gods breathed and expelled in the same way that humans do air and it was it was utilized by people to explain 
you know, natural phenomena like wind or, you know, different things that we, we experience atmospherically. And, you know, uses of the term for, for science continued on until the, the days of, of, like, the discovery of gravity and Sir Isaac Newton, who also comes up a few times in these chapters. So even if that conversation doesn't come up later and has just been mentioned so far to, to Will's point, it is probably a very purposeful usage of the terminology to call upon that history of, of once again, a melding of religious belief and an attempt to explain science. Well, on that note, um, there is a passage on page 220 where it, it kind of it, it ties to that, where it, it has this connection between science and religion, um, where it seems that Emerson is trying to, uh, he wants science to rationalize God and, and just isn't able to do that. Uh, it's this. It's the passage that says the telescope, the fluxions, uh, fluxions, the invention of logarithms, and the frenzy of multi- multiplication, often for its own sake, that followed have for Emerson all been steps of an unarguable approach to God. A growing clarity, gravity, the pulse of time, the finite speed of light, present themselves to him as aspect of God's character. It's like becoming friendly with an erratic, powerful, potentially dangerous member of the aristocracy. He holds no quarrel with the Creator's sovereignty, but is repeatedly appalled at the lapses in attention, the flaws in design, the squanderings of life and energy, the failures to be reasonable or to exercise common sense, first appalled, then angry. We are taught, we believe, that it is love of the creation which drives the philosopher in his studies. Emerson is, Emerson is driven, rather, by a passionate resentment. Um, I, I thought that was a really interesting paragraph explaining Emerson and, and his, and, and I think a lot of early, uh, not early, but a lot of scientists at this time, and really there's scientists of, uh, of all ages um, throughout history have, have tried to essentially connect those, those two dots um, with varying degrees of success. But I think this kind of shows that, you know, Emerson can see the flaws in the idea of, of religious, um, scientific ideas melding because you can't necessarily like if you have this perfect being who can create these perfect things and then there should be perfection in all of those things but when you really examine how things like evolution work and and a lot of different things in physics you start to see these little things that work in ways that they really shouldn't if they were a perfect system um and so i'm always fascinated by those scientists that try to put those two together even though I don't think you really can, and I'm this. I'm this is me speaking as a non-religious person, but um, I I just am fascinated by that that concept of the the highly religious scientist has always just been something that is a fascinating duality to me. Yeah, it, it is incredibly fascinating, and it's something that's continued until you know the modern day. When I was a minister, one of the the teachers that I I looked at a lot was this guy named R.C. Sproul, and he had a, a quote that he used a lot where he said, um, science is the way in which God reveals the plan of his creation to mankind. But you still end up with, to Emerson's point, these these ideas that cut against the idea of a perfect creation or a perfect creator. And I believe it was Luke who brought up deism in the first episode with Mason and Dixon. But you kind mm-hmm. of see em- Emerson moving towards a deistic worldview where he he can't acknowledge that there isn't a god but in describing this system that has imperfections in it or that you know doesn't seem to make 
complete sense, you end up, if you're going to remain a religious individual, you end up in a position where you subscribe more to the the theory of God as a as a clockmaker, or whatever deity this is created a system that works. You know, there's there's nothing that says that it has to be perfect, but created this system, set it to run, and then disappeared to wherever a god goes. And it is it's it doesn't seem inconsequential to me that a lot of the religious thinkers, especially uh, scientific thinkers, rather. Um, especially in the the early Americas, were were all deists in their interpretation of the world. Of the world, they were still religious individuals, but they melded those beliefs with with deism rather than with Christianity or Catholicism. Yeah, everything you just talked about reminds me of that quote from earlier in Mason and Dixon, with the whole history is a search for like God's hand in humanity or something, which uh, does kind of remind me of you know, like I I. Uh, I graduated from a Christian, uh, private Christian high school, but I had gone to public school up until my sophomore year in high school. But at that private Christian school, uh, we were taught in Bible class that evolution wasn't real and all this stuff, uh, which never really, you know, like I, I was, I've always been kind of vehemently against that kind of stuff, uh, that kind of like pseudo, like the re- religious based, like pseudoscience bullshit. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. it's always occurred to me that, like, you know, like, evolution and like natural selection could be evidence like for God's existence. If you want to interpret it that way, because it's, it's, you're coming up with like rules that, that life has to follow. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, you know, like I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. view religion and science as mutually exclusive in a lot of ways. I was just going to say, and they don't have to be, you know, speaking as somebody who was in the church for a really long time from the time that I was born up until 2020, you know, it, it, it was very fascinating to watch to your point about like evolution or other other things in science becoming more and more concrete as more and more discovery and, and method was applied to them that the church went from you know this this if you believe this it invalidates god or this is impossible because of god's creation in this way or, or another to when it becomes undeniable you end up in a position where you have to accept it and then you come up with an alternate explanation for it. And that's something that the church has done for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, we've already mentioned Galileo, but it, it, it happened then there too, where he he preached against what, uh, or taught rather against what the church was preaching, was jailed for it, and then, you know, eventually died. And then years later, we discovered, no, actually he was true. And then the church just had to change its tune. That's something that they they do quite often. Um but there there does not need to be a, a mutual exclusivity between the two of them. No, uh, and that's something that um I, Stephen Jay Gould had mentioned. Um I, I think it came I think he coined the term uh non-overlapping magisteria after the this book came out. Um but it's the idea that basically science and religion can exist exclusive from each other, where you have, you know, science handles this the science of things. And religion handles the philosophy of of things, the the meaning of life, and the the search for purpose, and and those kind of things. Um, and that was something that, you know, with with Gould, I, I respected that. I, I thought that was an interesting way to separate those two ideas and and allow for both to exist simultaneously, and remove the kind of conflict that existed in between them. Um, I know some people immediately uh, dismissed that that concept, but I always kind of thought it was a a interesting way of looking at it and, and an interesting proposition to solve that essential problem. Yeah. And the, the, there's a, there's a recurring theme, which I'm going to continue to torture our listeners with across all of <laughs> Finchin's books 
that he really seems to have a great resentment for the erasure of um, the belief in gnosis and almost all early scientists and mathematicians, whether we're talking about Newton and Leibniz to Spinoza, who's firmly in the philosophical camp, to William Emerson, um, up through modern believers, uh, not believers, but not modern thinkers like... Um, I mean, there's a reason he chose that Werner von Braun quote to open Gravity's Rainbow. Um, that th There is a recurring belief in these early scientists in, this, in, in the idea that whether there is a god or not, if there is one, the best way to exercise your spirituality is to try and learn and try and... Uh, approach him through enlightenment in a in a very very conceptual manner um, and especially through this section with all of the talks of you know masculine on the island the, the, the living island with uh, both Mason's father and Dixon's tutor um, and the the reveals of secret controlling people, uh, whether it's Maskeline saying, hey, uh, if you hadn't set, sent that letter mentioning this, then the Royal Society wouldn't have sent you to the Cape. Or it's um, Lemaire and, well, Lemaire trying to get Dixon to do some spying for him. We, we have this moment of realization of the the secret methods of power and the these these motifs of false fatherhood or um, unrighteous fatherhood, and I think that it, it's it's pretty hard to ignore all of those together and how they mesh with uh, the themes of Gnosticism as a whole. Yeah, I agree completely. I think you've you've summarized it perfectly, and and keep torturing the the listeners with that theme because it's very very important. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, and to your point, uh, Cody, the non-overlapping Magisteria essay, I had to read it in seminary. It was published in 97, so it was actually published the oh, same was year that, okay. that Mason and Dixon was. Yeah, it was a, it was a response to the 1996 address by, by Pope John Paul II. Yeah, I knew, it was, I knew it was late 90s. I thought, I was thinking it was like 99 or even 2000. I think one, the other, I think, biggest part of these chapters was... Um, as, as you mentioned, Kate, and I think Luke and, and Will, I think we've all mentioned it, it was the, how much of the backstory we get of Dixon at this point. And it's, it's interesting because I think his backstory and I think, Will, you were the one that brought up how reliable it may be coming from him. Um, but his, his upbringing was definitely almost the polar opposite. I think of, of Mason's like his dad was, was there emotionally and seemed to have a lot more warmth and and humor uh, in their relationship. And, um, but the inverse is true, I think, of his relationship with his mentor, where, you know, he was, as you said, well, you know, dismissing pretty much everything that, that Dixon wanted to do with his life and questioning the, the validity of it. And, you know, why would you even want to go and do that? You're just wasting your time. Uh, you know, you only care about going out to make money. And uh, he had a line in there somewhere where he really ripped into him about it. But I thought it was interesting to see the, the difference. And it ties into that whole, you know, with the connection again to against the day of that duality and, um, 
of Mason and Dixon, you know, the, these two men who have these absolutely different upbringings that forms and shapes them uh, into the people that they are when they meet. I really enjoyed the the section where uh, Dixon's dad meets his future wife and uh, Dixon's mom, uh, him like doing the voices mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like being for whatever reason obsessed with her shoes. Um, yeah. Putting him on his hands, I think, and like talking to him like puppets. Yeah. Which at first I thought that she might have been like joining in on the little charade, but then it turns out that he's just doing all these different voices. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that he's good with kids because it, it it does say that the the kids in the in the in the vicinity uh, do kind of are kind of drowned to him while he's doing those voices. Well, I think it's a good example too of the concept of of opposites attracting, where you have these two men from very very different backgrounds. That if that was not the case, they wouldn't have much to talk about. And it seems as though what they really enjoy about each other is the is the, the conversations that they can have. I mean, when Mason introduces Dixon um, to Susanna Peach, and he Im- immediately begins with a, with a, presumably a racist or dirty joke. Like it's very clear that that is something that Mason would not do, but finds to be an attractive quality in in Dixon, like his humor and his his different way of communication. So I think it's it's pretty key to understanding why the two of them feel so connected to one another, or at least enjoy one another's presence in each other's lives. I don't think that. I mean, certainly the book would probably be less engaging if they had similar upbringings and, and communicated similarly. But the fact that that difference does exist, I think, informs a big reason why they, they like each other so much. Yeah, and for, to further extent, you see kind of a similar attitude towards humor in the flashbacks to Rebecca in Chapter 21. Mm. Uh, not the same sense of humor, of course, uh, but definitely the same sort of, you know, just jabbering on and on, making making playful threats that you really can't tell quite how sincere they are. Um, it's it's clearly something that, in general, Mason Charles Mason is uh, is attracted to on a personal level. And that brings me to I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Will, because um, there's a part in the I think it was in chapter 21 where. Um, Rebecca asks where her and, and Mason are going to be going. And it seems, and I could be way off base here, but it seems to be the, almost a, a callback to the black hole of Calcutta um, where she says, um, well, look at it. Is it. It's peculiar, isn't it? Are you taking me to one of these sinister castles? Oh, I've read about them. Secret rituals, folks and capes and hoods, sex, torture, nuns and monks. Why, Charlie, the idea. I, obviously, I don't, she wouldn't have any way of, of referencing the Black Hole Calcutta, but I think that was just an interesting insert um, and an interesting play from her, uh, kind of jibing him, knowing him, you know, that would probably get a rise out of him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, the, the pulp serials clearly laid uh, laid some fertilizer down that the, the Dutch then used to inspire their fantasies down in the Cape based on the real Black Hole. Which is something that <clears throat> Pinchon would have been very familiar with. I mean, those same ideas of like ridiculous rituals and people dressed in in hoods and masks and all of that mm-hmm. persists in society to today with with mythology around like Bohemian Grove and things like that. So, it it certainly is something that he would have been aware of, and I could see him picking something like that to point you know to point at and kind of laugh. And then we get, um, and I may be correct me if I'm wrong here. There's a there's a mention on page two thirty 
um, where it's it's implied that Dixon. It's not implied. It specifically says that Dixon's there's you know, somebody puts their hand on Dixon and he considers biting it. That comes up again, if I'm not mistaken, him biting and being a biter. Maybe I'm confusing with something else, but I almost positively remember that there was other instances of him biting in the in the later parts of the book. Well, he is a gourmand, you know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, biting other people. So, yeah, maybe he's just getting a taste for the old Soylent Green. Well, his best friend is a reverse werewolf. Let's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about that real quick. Uh, <laughs> that uh, that whole passage I had totally forgotten about, and and coming back to it, um, I I absolutely love. It's so weird, and just the 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 buildup of of this whole werewolf idea, and and then the payoff of it just being you know he turns into this. Uh, this northern fop, I think, is that you described it well, and it's perfect. Um, you know, where it, the the very last part uh, of chapter twenty three is is Ma Ofri complaining that he's he memorized all these different musical passages and and just sings them to her and tells these jokes that she doesn't get and talks in in talks in foreign tongues. It just it killed me. I loved it. Well, and also like the entirely plausible history behind the mythology of werewolves just that yeah. it's a it's like a, a a allegory for puberty in in men mm-hmm. in particular and to to go through that entire thing to the point where the reader at least in in my case could starts to wonder oh, i wonder if this is actually true and then having the character come in and be a, a reverse werewolf yeah. is just a, a really great example of his humor in upending expectations yeah well, yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing to have him as a wolf man walking around grunting and growling, and people are more or less making out what he's saying, and he's just kind of being a normal guy walking around, so the kind of person who would mine coal. And then the moment he gets struck by the the moonbeam, everyone is terrified as he sprouts a long peacock feather <laughs> and starts reciting poems. Yeah, and you've you've got to wonder about. You know, okay, so the the ancient werewolf is an idea where you're terrified of your boy, your your smooth-skinned, pleasant little boy growing up, getting big and hairy and strong mm-hmm. and scary. Um, and this new modern werewolf is you're still you 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 want you want the big scary man, but what you seem to get is this very looks obsessed, very artsy kind of not quite man right that you don't understand you don't you don't you know who knows what the hell he's talking about yeah uh, i don't i don't i i don't envy you cody (laughs) no i know my (laughs) son turns 12 in uh seven months so watch out for hats with white brims um but then just before that too we have the infamous british pizza which (laughs) This that scene reminded me of the the scene in Gravity's Rainbow with the jelly beans. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, it's and it goes back to our earlier conversation about capitalism in general and more specifically globalization, because here we have an instance of the British palate 
um, taking taking literally just hearsay of, oh, you, there's this food called pizza. How do you make it? Can we do it with just these <laughs> random things we have in this tavern? <laughs> and yeah, the the way in which they go about creating it with dialogue from multiple patrons of the bar to yeah. the point where where one of them asks if they have a tomato. And then someone else's response is, I think I saw one once at Darlington Fair. Like, just the, the level of humor that exists just at every level in that scene as it gets created is, oh god, it, it, it had me rolling with laughter. And, and I just went back and reread it just because of how excellently plotted out it was. And just the the weirdness of it where... Like let's take a let's take a you know a freshly made loaf of bread and then just punch that into a circle. You know we're not gonna we're not gonna take like you know dough and then bake it. We're just gonna we're just gonna flatten a loaf of bread and then you know okay well we have no tomatoes but Dixon brought a bottle of ketchup back with him, which if if it's the anachronistic ketchup that's already kind of gross but if it's the worcestershire sauce kind of thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago that's even freaking worse right and uh so they they got they got those two things and then for some reason they have anchovies on there so they throw that on there instead of like any kind of fish and then leftover stilton cheese like it's oh god it, it would be absolutely horrifying if you tried to create a pizza with those ingredients i could see how you could do like a like an upcycled version with better ingredients uh but i i do love the the last paragraph after they've gone through the process of making it where it says by the time what is arguably the first british pizza is ready to yeah. come out of the baking oven besides the hearth the road outside has gone quiet and the moorland dark several rounds have come and passed and Lud is beginning to show signs of apprehension like and the 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 i love the mention of apprehension because that could be read two different ways that could be read apprehension at eating what they've created but mm-hmm. it could also be apprehension over the rest of the conversation up until that moment just the phrase what is arguably the first british pizza also just got me or it's it, it's it's not totally a pizza. It kind of is. It's arguably a pizza. It yeah. made me think of um, not just the jelly bean scene in, in Gravity's Rainbow, but also there was a bit that, that Bill Hicks did, um, the comedian if, who I love, where he talked about being in, in London and, and experiencing, I uh, put in, in air quotes, their food and how he was like, you don't boil pizza. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> that, that immediately came to mind. But uh, I'm sorry. Well, I cut you off there. Oh, it's just, you know, it's, in, and there's a, there's another way of thinking about the arguably the first British pizza, and it's just that no one can decide where pizza was first made, and nobody can decide when the first pizza was made in, in any particular place. I mean, the, you know, if you're, if you're serious about it, you'll recognize that flatbreads have been part of Mediterranean cuisine for thousands of years, and the addition mm-hmm. of, like... Mm-hmm specific mozzarella and a tomato sauce does not change it fundamentally but at, at the core that is the that is the argument that's recurring and it's, it's a generationally rehashed one throughout the entire globe and so to have Pinchon essentially say you know what screw it the first pizza sure it was made in italy but before it was made in america these idiots Threw a bunch of stuff together on a loaf of bread and called it pizza. Not a loaf of bread, remember? It was beat the hell up. That's true. <laughs> well, and, and, flat. and 
the best part of that loaf of bread to me is that it's like it's a country loaf. This is this is the stuff they have for a plowman's lunch. That yeah. you're supposed to eat a chunk of that bread, and it's supposed to be half of a meal. Yeah, it's, it's like hard Olympus tech. bread. It's yeah. it's it's heavy. It's full of fiber and seeds, and it's probably very dense. Yeah, so imagine eating what is already dense bread, but compressed into a uh, circle with with a bunch of random shit thrown on top of it. Oh my! That whole yeah, that whole scene just and, yeah. And I love pickled things. I love I love anchovies. I love uh, Stilton cheese. I mm-hmm. love Worcestershire sauce. You could not pay me to to <laughs> smile while taking a bite of that monstrosity. No, this is Ninja Turtles level pizza. <laughs> I know that binging with Babish really only does stuff from movies. But Thank if you for bringing that up. Yeah. If, if someone could pay him whatever money it would take to try and <laughs> like create a better version of this recipe, God, would I be so willing to see him attempt that? I, I was I would, thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> just imagine how many views he would get from the shots of his well-developed forearms punching a full English loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, it's just a real nice artisanal country loaf from somewhere in Brooklyn. <laughs> I just... Oh my, and just, I'm thinking about, like, I've seen so many of the awful things he's he's created and eaten, and just the abject terror that he has before taking a bite of some of those things. Mm-hmm. And this would, this might be probably one of the worst. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Especially because that Stilton cheese is, is described uh, as being left over, which means yeah. that it's probably, like, maybe a rind and some stuff left on it, and it's probably been sitting out all day, like... Probably some oh, beer boy. spilled on it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that ev- that even isn't the the first mention of the the leftovers as they were. I think Emerson also walked in uh, at one point with like a plate full of random leftover garbage that he was planning on eating. I can't find the specific page now, but uh, oh, here it is. Yeah, on the beginning of chapter twenty-two, Emerson bustling into the room bearing the remains. Of the bloat herring from breakfast directly adjoining upon the plate, an oxtail from several meals ago, and something that may once have been a haggis cries, now clap yourselves down in an unnaturally vivacious tone. So old food is the good food at that time, I yeah. guess. And given what haggis already is, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I want to know <laughs> what 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 might have been a haggis at one point is. Standards <laughs> were different, you know. You had yeah. to make do with what you had. And I like I don't know if necessarily Pinchon is is using this scene as anything other than commentary or anything other than comedy, but there is a potential commentary in the way in which British I'll use the phrase cuisine uh, <laughs> as a as a like a national entity rather than like specifically British recipes does take things from other cultures that they either mm-hmm. conquered or colonized and changes them. Like the technically the national dish of England is is chicken tikka masala. Um, but it's, it's not the same as what you get in India and like British takeaway Chinese food is not the same as what you'd get, you know, when, when you're in China, it's, they they all get altered slightly when they, they make their way over to, to the island, so to speak. So it it did also remind me of some of that as well, of just like this, you know, we're taking, we're taking a foreign dish and we're, we're putting our own spin on it. But in this case, it is a, it is a Lovecraftian horror of a spin on it. Rather than well, something that you'd want to eat. And I have firsthand experience with that. I went to London. My wife studied abroad over there for like six or eight months um, after 
we graduated high school. And so I went over there to visit her at one point and they, there's a restaurant. I don't know if it's still there, but there's a restaurant in London called uh, the Texas embassy. And it's, uh, they try to, to offer uh, American Tex-Mex and uh, as, as someone who lives in South Texas and very well versed in, in Tex-Mex, um, I'll, the, I, the nice thing I can say is that they got the look of the restaurant right. Like they, it, you walked in, it felt like you're in a in a Texas restaurant. But mm-hmm. I've not often had such bland uh, Mexican food. It mm-hmm. just was, yeah. Like it was just this thing of like, I can't imagine having that and not knowing what the the real. I mean, and I'll clarify that Tex-Mex is not Mexican food. It's its own unique thing. Um, but what that what was there was not anywhere close to approximating <laughs> Tex-Mex. That that is comedic in the same way that the the little British village in Arrested Development is is comedic of a a British yeah. like tourist town inside America that has. British cars, British ways of traveling, and also British food, but produced mostly by American people. Um, but and and I think he goes to an American restaurant in that town in when he's town, on yeah. when he's on that date, where it's just the exact inverse of of what you'd expect to eat. And I've I've never you know been to to England myself, but certainly coming from growing up in Chicago, any place outside of Chicago that tries to make deep dish pizza just fails miserably at it. That's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's a, there's a subplot in this season of Ted Lasso about uh, Ted, like eating at an an American food restaurant in Amsterdam. And it's, it's definitely played up for comedy a lot. Well, yeah. And the, the, the best thing about British food, if you ask me, is their pride around it. Because Mm -hmm. when the creme de la creme, of your cuisine is making a really thick pastry, lining a pot with it, and then filling that pastry with um, beer and offal. I feel like you don't get to criticize people's cooking. And yet I've never met a Brit who doesn't completely trash American food, which at least tastes good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I, I genuinely do love British food, um, but I, I recognize that I'm wrong for that. <laughs> and it's it's a real testament as somebody from New Mexico. The 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 hostility I have deep inside my soul towards Tex Mex as a genre of food. <laughs> and imagining just how bland English Tex Mex must be. It's bad. Is, it's sad. It's deeply depressing. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> yeah, they, I will and say they, they imported like, Texas beer, so they had that. Okay, that was about they it. Did that at least. Schinerbach. Yeah. Uh, yes, and they also had Lone Star, which is okay. the Texas equivalent of Bud Light, essentially. But you know, they did have Shiner. <laughs> there you go. Um, what else? Uh, oh, so I okay, so I caught a couple of what could be me being way too generous with my interpretation of it, but it could also have been uh, some interesting pop culture references. Uh, the first of which on page 243, there's the line going out on the collier to Mary and Meg bound again for London river, riding atop the huddock Dixon sees fog pale and shifting approach like a great predatory worm. I immediately thought of Dune uh, of the Shia Lude, 
the the sandworms that are in there and i i know he has a lot of of sci-fi and fantasy elements in his in his work so i wouldn't be surprised if that was a sort of subtle nod to dune um it could also just be be me looking way too into it for something that isn't there but i could definitely see him enjoying at least the first dune book and even even perhaps past that i was gonna say past that even because they get weird after yeah. Dune. dune itself is weird but damn they get weird after dune yeah god Everything, emperor yeah god emperor of dune i didn't go past that but uh this is a bit random but uh, I read God Emperor of Dune about a year ago when I was still a professor and I, I had to call in sick to work the next day because I, I was up to like 4 or 5 a.m. making <laughs> memes about it. Oh, but I actually man. did pretty well on the Dune meme subreddit, but like I, I just couldn't stop making these like absurd memes about <laughs> that, that, book, that book is so absurd and memeable, in my opinion. It is. Yeah, I, I only read Dune for the first time uh, last. Uh, oh, it was uh, early 2021, I guess, before the movie came out. Mm. And um, I, I, I was surprised to see quite how much of, you know, it's not it's not Pynchon's trademark, but it is it is very much something I associate with Pynchon the 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 deep political intrigue and the insistence on just throwing everything at the reader, mm-hmm. yeah, and just hoping that they catch up, and then if you do catch up, if you do understand. If you do catch the keywords and you do catch the definitions of those keywords and you do follow along just the right, then like a good detective novel, like most of Pynchon's books kind of are, you can kind of understand what's happening right before it's revealed explicitly to the reader. Yeah. And it, one... it, it, yeah, it's just something that I, uh, I'm not sure I would ascribe any influence there, but I would not at all be surprised if there were some. One thing that I think Herbert and Pynchon and Neil Stevenson all have in common is how much research they do for their books and how their books yeah. are almost like built around the research they do. Instead of, instead of coming up with a book idea and then researching it, it seems like they do research first and then let the book come out of that. Yeah, for sure. Especially Stevenson with his the historical stuff that he does. I started reading Quicksilver, which is similar in its in the time that it takes place to Mason and Dixon. Um, I, I didn't finish it. I got to a point where it was just too, uh, what's that, dry, I guess the, the, the care, I didn't care for the characters. I just felt like they were kind of flat and, and two dimensional. And it was just, I think reading that concurrent while I was reading Mason and Dixon, uh, when we started covering it was just too much of the same era for me. So I need to maybe go back mm-hmm. to it because his is a trilogy of, um, uh, Quicksilver and two other books i don't remember the names of uh but i've read other 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 of his his works and yeah he does he does have a lot of um a lot of research that goes into the the themes and topics that he's going over um and there's definitely some connections i think to him being uh, influenced by Pinchon for sure yeah no i agree completely uh it, dune was is a pretty important book to me it was like the third book that my mentor ever ever told me to read and it has been up there with with a lot of Pinchon's work where when I when I meet someone else who's who's really into reading whether it's a coworker or something it does it's one of the books that I always bring up to people and I I to your guys point about the the like I think it was Will who said you know if if you can get through all of the information you can kind of start to see what he's doing I think I've basically said that exact same sentence to people about both Frank Herbert and Thomas Pinchon um <laughs> And given just how major of a book Dune was, at least the first one, 
in the literary landscape when it came out and its melding of politics about you know hydraulic despotism and um you know charismatic leaders and and influential Mm -hmm. political sort of assassinations and everything i i I can see that being absolutely something that that pinchon would have read and loved and took things out of for sure and then the other pop culture kind of thing I found was uh, on page 232, there's the line, uh, Apology, Dixon's face, as all would swear to later, having commenced to glow in the murk. Why you little... Which, just those last three words, is, is a Homer Simpson uh, <laughs> staple. And knowing Pinchon was later on The Simpsons, I don't remember the specific year he was on, um, but I've watched the, the clips of him and in the show, which is great. And I got to meet Mike Reese, one of the showrunners for the show uh, at a book signing and, uh, and Q and a, he did a long time, a long time ago, a few years ago before uh pandemic. And I, I specifically asked him uh, about pinch on coming in. And I may have told this uh, story on the introduction, but he mentioned that when the writers and, and other people on the staff found out that he was coming in to, to do those parts that like people who hadn't even been involved with the show for several years showed back up just to be there. And, uh, and he did confirm that, that Pinchon was pretty much exactly as, as everyone thought he would be and, and was a pleasure to work with. And, and I think if my understanding is right, he did it because his son was a big fan of the show and he yeah. related to Homer in certain ways. So that's why I think that particular three words was chosen deliberately. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I think most of his episodes that he's on are in 2004. So that it would be right. after, after Mason and Dixon, but if um, if his son was already a fan of it by then, I wouldn't be surprised if if Pinchon was himself a fan, or if they had already started watching it in some way. And so he just he felt the need to put that in there. I could absolutely absolutely see him doing that. Those early seasons or have a very Pinchon influence, especially with the like writers like John Swartzwelder. Uh, I think embody a lot of Pinchon esque humor and and weirdness that found its way into the early seasons of the show. Another pop culture reference that I think the Pinchin Wiki picks up on. Y'all would have to. I might have been the. There's this listserv I found that's uh, linked on the Pinchin Wiki. But people were talking about the the conversation of uh, Mason and Rebecca about druids. Um, it's apparently mm-hmm. very close to a conversation in Spaceballs. Yeah, the Mel Brooks thing. Yeah. Yeah, which I found interesting because I I did love Spaceballs as a teenager. I haven't revisited it, but it's been a minute since I've watched that one. There do seem to be more pop culture references in these chapters than we've gotten previously. Okay, I had a couple things I wanted to get y'all's opinion on. Um, there's a line on page 216. Uh, Euphrenia just says, she has the line, Peach Knot is, is never, is, ah, let me start that over. Peach Knot is ever my policy to puke. Uh, I, I took that as her, uh, as a kind of jibe at the, the Peach family being gossips and her not being willing to be a gossip and engage in that kind of thing. I don't know if y'all picked up on that as well, or if I'm just reading too much into that. It might be for sure, uh, an intentional kind of double entendre, but it, it is also to, to peach is an old school kind of slang term to, to give up, to, to tell the truth. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's like spill the beans. And then, oh, okay. And then I don't know if the mention of on page two thirty three the the lads after adventure seems a little bit of a chums of chance nod yeah i think i I picked up on that too all the uh all the against the day 
ties are driving me insane because it just makes me want to read that book again. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to have to read that. Whenever we go through it, I'm going to have to read Mason and Dixon right afterwards with all the ones that keep getting mentioned. It's, I mean, I, I catch more and more of them as we go through. And it's, you know, we've mentioned it so many times now that it was written concurrently, but it's, it, it didn't make itself as apparent, I think, on, on my first reading that there were so many kind of through lines between the two. Yeah, even on a structural level this time through, Mason and Dixon, I'm seeing a lot of uh, very familiar aspects between the books. I'm already rereading Gravity's Rainbow right now. Just wait, I'll be reading all three soon enough. <laughs> it's a heavy workload. Yeah, I know. I'm having to, like, I've been picking smaller books to be reading on the side of this just to, I'm trying to clear off my bookshelf for one and just finish all the books that I have there, but I'm also, I don't want to invest myself in two 800-page novels at the same time. I'm going to eventually because I have a bunch of big-ass books that I need to get through, but I'm trying to get the small ones out of the way here and there. Yeah, I did not look out. I was reading Fire and Blood, the history of the Targaryen dynasty when, when we started this, so I'm I'm working with two 800-page books right now. Yeah, well, and I picked up that second book of The Expanse, so I've got... But that's a qu- those are quick reads, so yeah, those I go can fast. get through that quick. Um, let's, let's go... Did y'all have any particular funny parts that we haven't already brought up? Uh, so at the, I was thinking of maybe doing this for my favorite quote or... Um, the most pinching part of the chapter, but um, there's the part where uh, uh, Mason says the phrase chicken nabobs. And saying it out loud, this might be a little bit more um, noticeable, but uh, I found it kind of funny because, like, you know, he's obviously, it's obviously a pun on chicken kebab, um, which I just looked up, and I think that those were possibly already had entered into the the British cuisine and the British language at this time, but... um, the pension wiki doesn't mention it as doesn't point out that that's a pun. And then I found it funny because the listserv I found, they apparently the guys running the listserv like looked it up in the OED and they, they said that there wasn't that chicken wasn't usually used to describe a nabob. That wasn't like one of the adjectives that is typically in front of the word nabob. And it seems like it seems to have gone completely over their heads in the 90s that that was a pun on chicken kebab. Uh hmm. Which I, it's not hilarious, but it is it is a pun. With, so I I enjoyed that. Yeah, it it is that pun is there, and there's no way Pynchon wouldn't use it with that intention behind it. But it does also it does specifically mean like somebody who came away from India with some money. Um, yeah, a nouveau riche thing. So, and some definitions say uh, a suspicious amount of money or a suspicious man <laughs> who returns from India with a. Um, I, the, the one scene that I wanted to bring up for, for this, um, that we haven't touched on yet is when they are, uh, they're in the, the pub and they ask about some music and I'm going to, I just want to read this paragraph cause it's absolutely hilarious. Um, it's hold, hold, stand easy. We've music here. Mr. Brain producing from behind the bar, a battered hurdy gurdy or humstrum of antique design left years ago by a gypsy to settle a tab. I music of plenty you need, but ask wonderful to have quality in spot of handle, perhaps whereupon he begins vigorously though with no clear idea of how the instrument works to crank and finger all in a God awful uproar. The dog goblin cowering eagerly howls along. Emerson bears the recital with an unexpected calm, gazing at a wall as if imagining the notes as they might appear on some staff 
as yet undevised, thumping time upon his knee. Dixon, whose mother, Mary Hunter, played each day to her children upon the clavier, is less entertained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm laughing. <laughs> mm-hmm. That uh, just, as someone who, I, I, as a musician, like I've been around people who don't know how to play an instrument and clearly think they do, and mm-hmm. how uncomfortable it can be to be in those situations, especially when there's so much confidence behind what they're doing. Um, and especially with an instrument like a hurdy gurdy, just yeah, not an easy thing to play. No, it's not. As as and, someone who primarily plays the drums and who, for whatever reason, anytime someone comes over to my apartment and sees that I have a drum set, feels a oh boy preternatural need yep. to sit down and play it. It is one of the most embarrassing. Yep. <laughs> like, and you don't want to just be like you don't know what you're doing, or you know, just to to insult them. You just kind of have to sit there and wait for them to tire themselves out. It's, it's uh, yeah yeah. yeah. As a drummer, it's like the it's like the scene in Step Brothers where Will Ferrell just gets behind the drums and starts going to town and just yeah, you know. bashing everything as hard as possible. <laughs> Which is not a far cry away from how I started playing the drums, but that's how everybody starts playing the drums. <laughs> that part did kind of remind me of I, it was either Kid Cudi or Lil Wayne or maybe both who like. Um, oh, I see. I saw Lil Wayne try to play the guitar. Yeah, oh, there was there was that them, thing yeah. where like he yeah. released a whole he released a whole album of him like trying to do rock music and he did an interview and he was like, Yeah, I, I I've never been like classically I, he's never done he didn't do any training before trying to make a rock album. Yeah. He just he just picked up a guitar and started fucking with it and then he recorded <laughs> it and released it. You'd be referred Which is insane to, to me. You'd be referred to Kid Cudi's classic album Speeding Bullet to Heaven. Oh, fuck um, that album, yeah. Which is terrible. Uh, I have not yeah. heard hey, that one. Hey, now, Eric, Eric Badu and and Andre 3000 both claimed it as their favorite albums of 2015. Did they really? Oh, what? Yeah. Now, that's a, that's something that that is weird enough to pop up in, you know, next century's pension. I've avoided yeah. that album because I've heard it so bad. It's an it, experience. It it's not. Yeah. It's not fun. No, I mean it's kind of like listening to a train wreck in well, they, in slow motion. Yeah. Kid Cudi then checked himself into re- rehab for mental illness for like six months. So yeah. Well, and, and then, I mean we all know Lil Wayne's history with uh, <laughs> cough syrup and and other depressants. Yeah. So yeah, it's you know it, it drugs least, drugs do things. At least Lil <laughs> Wayne's um, rebirth album. He did learn how to play guitar. It's not good music, but it is right. He, yeah. Well, I specifically, I did see there was a video of him on stage playing guitar. His guitar solo. Yes, it's yeah. uh, it's it's quite the experience. Yeah, I, that's an experience in just how to not hold an instrument. Never mind yeah. the way he plays <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> well, in uh, uh, a different kind of flash forward to our modern world um in the previous chapter on page 225 i really love how uh lemaire really just kind of he he sings this whole pitch to dixon about joining the society of jesus mm-hmm. and it ends with at the close of which the priest unhelpfully blurts celibacy of course being ever strictly enjoyed if you're a brother in the and it's just clearly like the pharmaceutical ads and the disclaimers yeah. at the end of them. And that's just beautiful. 
Yep. I did yeah, also cool. enjoy the insert of the um yes, yes, but uh in Bishop we say you may take the boy out of the country, but not the country <laughs> out of the boy. And then and then he proceeds to correct it and say, Nah, that's not it. But they'll never take the girl out of the city is how we say it. And then just the fact that Mason his response, and I love this, Mason is staring, shaking his head, what does yeah. that mean? <laughs> and then Dixon doesn't know either. He just goes, something about women. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> well, and you've got to wonder if if you're supposed to sit there and like think about it as some some form of koan mm-hmm. or if it is just you know idioms come up and no one actually knows what they mean half the time. Yeah. Because it, you know with all this with this book being so much about like the intersections between um country people and city people and so much mm-hmm. to do with progress in technology you've got to wonder is is there something salient there but probably not dixon at least has no clue yeah yeah <laughs> and it, it it may have hit me as being additionally funny because i'm re-watching Mad Men right now and trying to watch Mad Men as a woman is quite an experience and there are several moments in which they just ask the phrase like what does that mean to a woman or what does a woman want and the other person has some weird you know, either pithy response or some pseudo-intellectual response. And just to have these two people basically have the same conversation and, and neither of them even know, just and, and they plainly admit it, struck me as particularly funny. Yeah, I, I find myself, especially with this reread of this book, like I'm, I'm thinking about the different um, comedy TV shows specifically that have, that seem to I, I can't say they've been directly influenced by the book or pinch on but they operate on a similar uh comedic level mm-hmm. the one that always comes to mind for me is it, one of my absolute favorite shows is the venture brothers and the way that show is written and the way the comedy is presented is it has a lot of similarities with especially the interactions between mason and dixon here um and i find myself constantly just thinking about like wondering if if the the creators i've never i've listened to a bunch of the commentaries on the the dvds i never brought them up but i i have to wonder like if if they're influenced by his work at all because the the way they use pop culture references and uh just bizarre historical contexts here and there to craft jokes is is stunning and absolutely if you haven't seen that show it's absolutely hysterical yeah, I can second the recommendation, but I can also say that, sadly, for anyone who's hoping that you might turn up an interview that, that would enlighten us, it's not likely, because the writers of that show take a very very Pinchonian approach to yes. pop, to, to public uh, engagement. Like we, I don't think anyone but Adult Swim knows who one of the writers is at this point, still. That sounds about <laughs> right, yeah. It's it's like a it's a nom de plume that doesn't have any ties to anything else. Well, let's uh, let's go into quotes. Did, who wants to? I know Will's going to go last, so we, we can you all know. steal his his thunder before he gets a chance to. <laughs> um, my quote comes from page two eleven uh, in my edition, where it's in the midst of all of the conversation between Rebecca and Mason. Um, around Stonehenge and, and some of the stuff that we've been talking about earlier. And there's a there's a paragraph here where it says, 
And what sort of looks will she and Susanna be exchanging there in the courtyard of the observatory? Across the wind that bears away everything spoken. Steps from the zero meridian of the world. The young mistress in her doorway, the sorcerer's apprentice's lower-born wife, with her head inclined out of politeness, yet her eyes gazing out of curiosity. When does Rebecca begin to suspect that she is there to guarantee her husband's behavior? I find it just one of these moments where the absolute poetry of Pinchon's words really hits in full force in, in a lot of the ways that I had talked about when we were talking about Crying of Lot 49, where in that, in that one paragraph, he says so much about the dynamic between Rebecca and Mason. He brings in the, the ley lines and the, the metaphysical stuff from this chapter, and it, it has an eye towards the future in an almost tragic sense that underscores the position that Mason finds him in at the beginning of the book. And through most of the sections that we've read and it, it does so with such like beautiful imagery um the, the word choice and the few different descriptions that he gives of the place they're in and of their dynamic really struck me as being particularly profound and it's it's such a genius way to interlace all of these themes in a very human way and in a very you know human-centered thing that we keep talking about with the, the the warmth and humanity of this novel. So that would be the one that I would pick. I'll piggyback off of that because your, your mention of poetry um, kind of ties into what I have uh, highlighted. Uh, so uh, this is on page 243 and it's in the middle of, uh, of a paragraph here. Um, it's far away upon the shields, a bell boy rings in the dank morning and somewhere closer upon now invisible rounds yet goes the bell of the Tagarine man ship to ship iron seeking iron. And then like that wrapped in sulfurous signatures of fresh coal, have a score of savages appeared out of the sea fret paddling pierogies, uh, shouting strange jibber jabber, the words incomprehensible yet the vowels unmistakably North British. I, I, I do a podcast uh, with my son um, about, uh, younger kids like sci-fi fantasy stuff. And so I've been, we've been talking uh, outside of that show about uh, literary devices. And so when I was reading this and I, I stumbled across that, I'd forgotten almost how great and poetic his, his work could be. And, and the alliteration that's in those, uh, in that sentence is awesome. And so I had to like pull my son in and be like, check this out and like, listen to how, because my son's also get starting to get into uh, into hip hop, and so I've been teaching him about uh, alliteration and, and inter like internal rhyme and stuff like that, and how that is played with a lot in a lot of hip hop, and all of hip hop really. Uh, and so I showed him like you know this this is an example of how authors can use those same kind of poetic devices to enhance their their writing and to make their prose more impactful. Um, and so that that just stood out to me as a, as a wonderful example of alliteration. I think my favorite quote is the opening paragraph of this section on 207, the opening paragraph of eight, of chapter 21. Uh, the towns around the Golden Valley didn't think much of one another as if combined in a league, not for trade, but for purposes of envy, spite, and vendetta. Living in a paradise, they chose to enact a purgatory. That's a great fucking two phrases. Mm -hmm. uh, where the new mill money flowing in seemed not to preserve the equilibrium of meanness and saltification they all thought they'd reached so much as to knock all lopsided again. And uh, it does kind of continue on from there. 
Uh, and it does get into like the effect of technology on the area that I think Mason lives in, um, which is an interesting kind of uh, thing that Pigeon does focus on here and there. Uh, but that that whole paragraph is just really beautiful, and is a is a really is maybe my favorite paragraph in the book so far. It's matched by maybe a few paragraphs in the in the uh, in the chapters to come, but it's it's probably top five paragraphs for me in this whole book. Yeah, that's a great one. I highlighted that one as well. Will did we did we win? Did we did we steal everything well, from you? Well, um, yeah, actually, yes. Uh, I thought I was going to be safe by choosing the first chapter of the section. Ah, um, oh, Luke hit it this time. Nice. Yeah, Luke and, swooped in. And actually, Cody, you uh, that earlier section where uh, where it describes Emerson's kind of worldview with regard to science that that was my kind of backup. So I've had to scramble here to find a replacement. Glad I'm in the clear this week. Give me one second. I just found I need it. to start tallying who steals these from him so we can kind of keep a scoreboard that's a good idea <laughs> um so yeah on a this is kind of a long one but on 233 the end a knowledge of tunneling became more and more negotiable as more of the surface succumbed to enclosure subdivisions and the simple exhaustion of space down below where no property lines existed lay a world as yet untraversed that would clearly belong to those pioneers who possessed the will and had mastered the arts of pluto with the availability of good equipment besides ever a blessing. So, beneath the surfaces of English parish towns, bands of Pikmin once came astern like giant worms, addressing themselves to faces that would take them where they must, fire-lit earth walls that betrayed nothing of what might lie a shovelful away. Sometimes, twas told, a lucky spademan might find buried treasure. Huzzah! No more of this earth-worming for me. Tell the master I'm off to London in the high life. And oh yes, here's a shilling for your trouble. And sometimes, twas told, the devil sent his own dodman to lead the diggers and grisly play around the corner again and into the churchyard, where death in its full unpleasantness awaited them, a skull, in the instant of any spade's burden, emerging from the mud just at eye level, smiling widely as in recognition the torches all at that instant guttering in some vile breath out of the suburbs of hell. Because it just is, I mean, it is just, it, it is so full of meaning, but it is also just incredibly well phrased it's just a beautiful paragraph to me yeah on a, on a on a rhythmic level chiefly which is something he plays less with in this book but i do love when he does well how about everyone's most pinch on parts mine would be probably just that entire scene in the bar just ev every part of it like because you mm. have the obviousness of the of the werewolf scene happening like we've talked about and then the the absurdity of of the pizza ending it but also like when they first get there they're talking about ranking bars against one another and the difference yeah. in in the bars that they they like but then it moves into you know heavy conversation for for a period and then you have all the stuff about like the the instruments and everything so it's such a there's so much going on in this one location over the course of like two chapters that is a perfect blend of humor and absurdity and also you know poignancy and thematic uh importance that just that combination of it all being in one setting between you know two principal characters for a chapter felt particularly pinchonian yeah no i'm with you 100 i i 
was was going to say the werewolf bit, but I think after discussing all of this with everyone, like <laughs> it it has to be all of that. Like yeah. like you said, Kate, the whole thing, everything at the bar, it's just it's all there. I think my most mentioned part was the section about Emerson being a practicing magician and teaching his students to fly. Oh um, yeah. It does occur to me that that could be a uh, um, not Robin Hood. What the fuck? Uh, Peter Pan. Peter Pan reference. Yeah, it did occur to me that that could be a Peter Pan reference. Um, but just that kind of magical realism and that kind of dip into more fantasy type stuff and the way it's treated super. Uh, but it's it's treated pretty pretty seriously and there's it doesn't. I mean, it's kind of obviously tongue in cheek, but it doesn't seem to be treated in that way. Like it's just kind of thrown in there that, you know, of course, Dixon growing up, you know, knew how to fly and stuff. It, I love that part. It does struck me as a very pinching thing to do, just kind of throw in a random fantasy section. Yeah, for sure. Will? Yeah, I honestly, I'm having a really hard time choosing anything but either the section of of the description of Emerson's worldview because I I do think that you kind of have to be somebody with the kind of background that Pynchon has to to understand that about some scientists. Yeah. It's it, it is a it is kind of a secret knowledge kind of thing to know that there are so many scientists who are driven by this weird spite towards reality. And maybe it's an open secret, I don't know. But um, but between that or the chapter, the the paragraph where Ma Ofori is, or what? Well, sorry, where Pinchon is talking about how Ma Ofori is terrified of her son's puberty and how that <laughs> that kind of thing is the root of yeah. werewolves. Where both of them are just recontextualizing, essentially historically, or well, uh, cultural beliefs that are held as historical. And just inverts them in in a very immediate way. All right. Well, we had a couple of emails this uh, this week. We had one from a listener, and and well, two from listeners. One from uh, our, our usual weekly email from Brett. Um, so before uh, Kate reads those, I do want to just remind everybody that um, with this being the end of part one, um, Brett Beeble, who we've mentioned before, has written uh, the upcoming companion. Uh, for Mason and Dixon. Um, he's uh, going to come on and join us for the next episode when we talk about part one uh, in whole. Uh, so we're all really excited to be able to talk to him and, and get a lot of insight on the, the historical context of everything that we've already read. So um, we look forward to that. Uh, but Katie, yeah, if you want to go ahead and, and read the emails that we got. Yeah, absolutely. So our first one comes from a listener named Pearl who says, Hello, Mapping the Zone. I'm fairly new to Pinchon and have only read in this order Inherent Vice, The Crying of Lot 49, and Gravity's Rainbow. It's actually pretty funny, Pearl. I read his books in the exact same order to begin with. I am going into my sophomore year of high school starting in August, so I don't often get Pinchon's obscure references due to not having an extensive knowledge of a lot of history. Anyway, listening to this podcast has helped a lot with understanding Mason and Dixon and Pinchon in general. Also, Kate has been a great addition to the more recent set of episodes. Looking forward to the discussion of chapters 16 to 20. Well, thank you for the specific shout-out. It's been great to be able to, to, to join the podcast. I was very excited about it when I first reached out to Cody, and we started kind of putting it together, and, and I'm even more excited that I got to rejoin after things in my life settled back down. And it's 
it's also just very cool that you're getting into his work uh, when you're still still in high school. Yeah, um, yeah, d- definitely keep exploring uh, not just his work but but other other postmodern authors and you know modernism and 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 also post postmodernism. There's a lot to learn, and you're starting out early, so you'll have more time than than most of us have to to devote to that over the the course of your life. Um, yeah. Next up, we have another email from from Brett Beeble, and he says. I don't have a lot on minor character names in the companion, mainly because our 100,000 word limit seems like a lot until you get to the end of part one and realize you spent 45,000 of them. So I love the stuff on Morneval and Qualls, super fun and cool details. A lot of my focus is on Pinchon's use of history, where he follows the established record, where he deviates from it, etc. So this episode is really close to my heart. So three notes from this installment. One, Mason and Dixon records. You're right that there's more historical documentation on Mason than on Dixon. I don't know for sure, but my assumption is this is partly because Mason was closer to the Royal Society. That organization keeps really detailed records. They even have minutes from council meetings dating back to the 1600s, and I relied on those when doing research for the Companion. Mason also wrote a lot of letters to Royal Society members. Those are usually regarding official business, but sometimes personal details comes through. Pinchon draws on that quite a bit. A lot of the available data on Dixon is here, and he includes a link to a web archive page that I'm sure we can put in the show notes um, for people to go and look at themselves if they're interested in it. You'll even see lines from that, Mary Dixon being the cleverest, or some such comes to mind, popping up in this week's reading. Of note, George Dixon's described there as a coal mine owner and seems to have been an inventor. So while Dixon is definitely in a lower social class than Mason, his family also had a certain amount of privilege. Two. Susanna Peach was definitely a real person, and her father was named Samuel Peach, as in the text. However, there's a very famous EIC bigwig, also named Samuel Peach, who wasn't actually Susanna's father. From what I can tell, it seems like the Sam Peach, who was Susanna's dad, was more like a cousin of the bigwig Sam Peach. In the novel, Pinchon kind of merges the two people into one. This is a rare instance of him pretty directly changing the historical record. Usually he's more playful about it. He never actually says Samuel Peach is the EIC Sam Peach, but it's pretty heavily implied. I imagine this is done to enhance some of the conspiratorial ideas in the novel, especially when Mason wonders how much Susanna's marriage to Bradley was about getting valuable astronomical data into Peach's hands. 3. Jenkins' Ear I had such a blast reading about the obscure historical episodes Pinchon includes. Here's my gloss on the War of Jenkins' Ear, especially of note, the war's connection to slavery, and the historical fact that Robert Jenkins did briefly serve as governor of St. Helena. So, it makes sense that there'd be a museum about him there. Pinchon's ability to ground plausible narrative in real historical details and draw connections between history and his story world is otherworldly. And he includes a quote here from one of the resources he used on this. It says, In 1731, the Spanish Garda Costa boarded the Rebecca, captained by Robert Jenkins on suspicion of smuggling. Jenkins' ear was cut off. There is a disputed, even discredited, historical story of Jenkins showing his ear in a pickling jar to Parliament in 1738, with the idea being that this timely display, in quotes, led to the 1739 War of Jenkins' Ear, contested in the Caribbean from Venezuela in the south up to modern-day Georgia. One major geopolitical cause. Spain had given Britain a contract allowing them to sell slaves in Spanish America. Britain wanted to ensure it was honored. As far as I can tell, the Ear Museum is fiction, but Robert Jenkins did serve as governor of St. Helena on behalf of EIC from 1741 to 1742. 
It's all another example of Pinchon explore, exploding the divide between history and invention. Thank you so much for those included notes, uh, week over week especially. They've they've been great to have additional context for for your forthcoming companion that uh, that gives us some of that information now, which we certainly greatly appreciate. All right, so um, join us next week when we talk about part one uh, in its entirety, uh, all 200 and some odd pages of it. Um, and like I said, we'll have Brett on to provide a lot of additional context. And so we're very excited to uh, see him and speak with him. And uh, we will see you all next week. Bye. See you all. Bye. Did you say you taught Annihilation, like the, the book by Jeff Vandermeer? I did, That's yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's a novella, kind of. It's a short novel. Uh, there's a movie ad adaptation. I uh, In grad school, I presented a paper about the Southern Reach trilogy and climate change uh, at a conference, and that was like kind of like the one, you know, like, that's like the one thing I'm like on any kind of record as a scholar of, you know what I'm saying? Like, That's I don't, cool. I haven't had any papers published or anything, but I've presented at that conference. So I had that excuse. Nice. How did you feel about the movie? Cause I, I loved all three of those books and I didn't really care for the movie. Yeah. I mean the first, the first, like I think three times I watched it, I was on acid. Um, <laughs> so that kind of colored it, but I love yeah, I mean, see, seeing it in theaters. Um, I remember I saw it in theaters in San Marcos, and it was actually a pretty packed theater on a Sunday after it came out. And uh, the lady, like this old lady I was sitting next to, was singing that um, that Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, like in the movie, you know? Oh, she's like singing along with it, which kind of made it better, almost. I don't know. It was a very like it was a very trippy experience. I do I do love the movie. I had some students who really hated it, and I do understand criticisms criticisms of it. You know, it is pretty different from the book, and. Uh, it's not the most, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I love a lot of it, but it, I don't know. It's kind of, it's a weirdly like, it's a weird movie, you know, like, I don't know. And it it's, is. I'm yeah. not sure how I, much of that weirdness was intended or not. Well, well what I read was the, oh, go ahead, Kate. I was, I was just going to say the interesting thing. I, so I'm a big fan of Alex Garland as like a writer director and like looking into the history of how that movie got made, Alex Garland said that the approach he took was he read Annihilation one time, yep, and then he he waited a year and wrote the script based off his memory of the novel. That's exactly and, what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. So like I knew that going into it, and I'm also a big fan of Vandermeer's work. I've I've read everything he's published. When I was a when I was doing book reviews, I, I got to talk to him a couple of times, and he's a fascinating cool. individual. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. And he's also very available. Like, if you want to talk to him, it's not hard to get really? a hold of him. Yeah, cool. him and his wife are very um, open to communication with people. And so going in, I was super excited. But knowing that that was how Alex Garland wrote the script, I was excited to see what got held in place and, and what was changed. And I, I personally wasn't disappointed. I, I quite enjoy that film. I need to go I was, back and rewatch it, I guess. I really love it. Yeah. I was reading that I think Garland might have re might have read like uh a copy of Annihilation before it was published. because uh, he either knew the publisher or knew Vandermeer. Because um, if he knew Vandermeer, like <clears throat> Vandermeer wrote like a very scathing review of men, the new the newest Alex Garland movie. 
like a long, like a very long, like really like fucking went in on Garland about men. Really? Yeah, I I loved men, so I didn't even finish Vanderbilt's review because it was pissing me off. But <laughs> I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I haven't either. It was fun to see in theaters because like the sound design of it is it's maybe like one of the most like wowing sound sound design movies I've ever I've ever heard. It's on. I was streaming. I think I don't. I don't know if it that still was, is. A twenty four did that one, right? They I did. think so. Yeah, and yeah. it definitely. It's not for everyone, and it it definitely like there's some the ending of it. Like I see people on Reddit like more or less making like memes about it, um, or like joking about how hard to watch the ending is. I have to go back. I don't want to spoil it, but it's watch. it's a pretty fucked up ending. I'm back, by the way. Uh, th- thanks for the recommendation, Luke. I uh, I had heard of Men, and I had heard the heard the negative things. I did not realize it was written and directed by Alex Garland, and I didn't realize it was starring exclusively Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Yeah, <laughs> that is. Only, a... There's like those two are in like almost every scene, and then there's there's one there's one other actor who's like plays the 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 woman's love interest, um, and that's pretty much it. There's basically like three actors in the whole movie. Well, R- Rory Kinnear, I-, I think, is one of the most underrated actors because yeah. he just nobody quite plays um, confused but entitled man quite so well. Every time I think about him, I always think of that the first episode of Black Mirror, which is such a fucking haunting episode. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yep. That's I need still... to go back and finish that show. That, uh, it, it it's I I don't know if it's worth finishing depending upon where you oh, where no. you ended up. Yeah, it, I don't know. Like it, I think the the original seasons that were on British television are all fantastic, and some of the early Netflix episodes, like in the first two seasons that Netflix did, I think are pretty good. But it seems like the longer Netflix has had control of it, despite it still being written mostly by Charlie Brooker, the the further away it's gotten from from the spirit. Um, and like the not just like themes but like the the impact of the original episodes yeah i think i watched the first two series of it i know i saw the christmas one with john ham and that was my favorite episode last yeah that, that's that was the last peaked. one i watched mm-hmm. okay it's all kind I'll of just, downhill from there i'll stop there i won't <laughs> no I'm just I, 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 <laughs> I'd, I'd say that through season slash series four is worth watching Okay, it's just it is not quite as good as those early ones. I just and I don't know why that is. It's the mostly the same creative people, unless just Netflix told them to like tone it down or something. I would not well, be surprised. Yeah, I think Charlie Brooker is a little overrated. He's That's not fair. nearly as consistent as you know people treated him at the beginning of Black Mirror. He's got you know he he did some great things, but even those first few seasons aren't really as good i think as people remember them yeah i mean season five i think it's season five i mean it has fucking miley cyrus in it so yeah that i will say though it's really bad that yeah. i will say though the, the cover the cover she did have had like a hole i do listen to randomly really? here there, it's it's weirdly like it's earwormy and it's just one of those things that dry it drills itself into my head i have a weird penchant for for pop music like i absolutely unabashedly love uh certain pop songs not not yeah. all of them but there are certain ones that i i think are 
put together in a very interesting structural way. Um, and so I will, I will, you know, I'll defend a lot of that kind of, cra- it's, it's garbage music. And I accept that wholly. <laughs> it's, it's like the, it's the Cheetos of music. Like I, I, I know I shouldn't be taking it in, but it's, you know, it just fills that weird void I have for a few minutes. So. Yeah. I remember when I watched that Miley Cyrus episode and in, in the end of the episode, she does like a, a live performance of that cover of head, like a hole. And I didn't know what she was covering at first. And then when it became apparent that she was covering that song, I think my exact reaction was no. <laughs> and then I proceeded to just watch the screen in somewhat abject terror as the it, credits I remember rolled. I saw it because it popped up on the Nine Inch Nails subreddit and everyone was like, what the hell is this? And then people started being like, it's, it's Miley Cyrus doing it. And then people were like clarifying, like, it's not her. It is a character that she's playing that's doing it. And it's intentionally made to, you know, play into that character. I haven't seen the episode, but I'm taking that on, you know, as it is what it is. But yeah, that's why I, I find myself randomly listening to it because it's just something that gets stuck in my head. So, yeah. And like from from the standpoint of the Netflix like seasons, like there's two episodes in season three that I think are pretty good. Like Playtest and Shut Up and Dance are both really good. And then in season four, I'd say like the USS Callister episode is really solid. And then mm. in season five, there was one episode I liked. It was it was called Smithereens. But like other than that, a lot of it just feels very very watered down or just kind of forgettable. I'll have to, I'll watch a little bit more of it. I have so many TV shows that I need to, I, I started watching The Expanse and I never finished that because I want to finish oh, the books first. Yeah, so, big, I'm a big fan of The Expanse. So, well, I read, I read Leviathan Wakes and I, so I started watching the first season of the show and I was like, I need to finish these books before I start watching the show. So I just today picked up the second book from the library. Um, yeah. I'm going to start that when I finish what I'm reading right now, so. I love yeah, the Leviathan Wakes. That was a great book, and I want to get back into it. So the, those books are excellent. I actually, funny enough, if my camera was on, you'd see that I'm recording in front of an MCRN flag. Like that—that <laughs> that was one of the, the the huge things I got into over quarantine was the Expanse. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Have you all ever heard of this? Is kind of random, but have you all ever heard of the novel We by the by the Russian author Zamyatin? Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it was a big influence on 1984, supposedly, or no, it was, it was definitely an influence on 1984, and then uh, it was supposedly an influence influence on Brave New World. Although I think Huxley denied that, but um, it's like it came out in like 1923. It's like kind of the foundational dystopian novel. I read it this week, and like I remember thinking the same thing the last time I read Brave New World. But like I think we like might literally be like the the best novel I've ever read. Like it was fucking astoundingly good. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have I haven't read it, but I know that my my writing mentor was a big fan of it. I'm reading right now uh, The Memory Police uh, by Yoko Ogawa, which is really, I'm really enjoying it. I'm halfway through. It's really yeah, good. When, when you finish it, let me know what you think of the ending. Okay. Okay. Because I just, that... I'm on a weird Asian psychological horror kind of thing. I, I just read the whole, I read that in one night. Yeah. That There's was really so much good. good there's so much good Japanese, um, like psychological or science fiction in particular. Yeah, Kenzaburo Oe, who I think died kind of recently. Uh, I read one of his. I had to read one of his books in college, but he does a lot. Like he's a very haunting writer who does fuck with your head a little bit. That's one that's been on my list. Is, is his work? Okay, well let's uh, let's jump back into it before we spend the next couple of hours talking about all the other. Awesome books that we've been reading. 